Well, in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we read, And seeing the multitudes, he, or Jesus, went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Not all sermons are created equal. Sermons are like pizzas. They come in different sizes and in different varieties. For one, perhaps you've heard of the rocking chair sermon. It goes back and forth, back and forth, but it really gets you nowhere. Then there's the casserole sermon. There's a little bit of everything thrown in, but nothing solid to really chew on. And then there's the Battle of Jericho sermon. That's when the pastor marches around the subject seven times before it falls flat. Then there's the Duracell sermon. You know about this one. It keeps going and going and going. And of course, the oil rig sermon. If you haven't struck oil in 20 minutes, stop boring. And then finally, there is the Atlanta Braves sermon. It starts out on a good note, but the longer it goes, the worse it gets. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is none of the above. If sermons were pizzas, this one would be a sermon supreme. In this sermon, Jesus lays out his manifesto. He sets out a better way for us to live and for us to interact with one another. For the folks sitting there on the grassy knoll overlooking the Sea of Galilee, those who had first heard this sermon, this was a sermon they would never, ever forget. You see, prior to this sermon, Jesus had been traveling the countryside, preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here he explains the nature of his kingdom. Jesus gives his followers a glimpse of what his kingdom looks like. The Sermon on the Mount could be called the Christian Manifesto. This is the very heart of Jesus' message. Matthew 5 begins, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. Whenever we visit Israel, we stop at the traditional site of the Mount of Beatitudes. There on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, there is a knoll overlooking the lake. As the hill slopes toward the water, it wraps around a banana grove, forming an outdoor amphitheater. You can stand on the ridge atop the, the amphitheater, and you can be heard hundreds of feet away. The acoustics are perfect for a man delivering a sermon to a large crowd. Well, Jesus positioned himself, and we're told that when he was seated, his disciples came to him. 
Now notice a peculiarity here. Jesus sits down to teach. You know, today the speaker usually stands, but the rabbi in the synagogue would sit down. What he said walking or standing was considered informal, off the record. But when he sat, he was making an official statement. This is why even today when a university's physics department creates a teaching position, they call it the chair of physics. Official announcements and formal teachings are symbolically done from a chair. When a pope makes the proclamation, he does so ex cathedra, or in Latin it means to speak from the chair. It's the same idea. The chair was the place of authority. And so when Jesus sat down to teach, his disciples knew that he was about to make a heavy, heavy statement. Now remember, Jesus came on the scene preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His motive is to bring heaven to earth. You could say in coming to earth, Jesus had gone behind enemy lines. He'd gone behind the kingdoms of men to establish the kingdom of heaven. But what were the values and the priorities of God's kingdom? Well, Jesus answers that question here in this sermon. In fact, Jesus reveals just how diametrically opposed are the priorities of heaven from the traits prized here on earth. And nowhere is this clearer than with these first eight Beatitudes. The values of heaven stand in sharp contrast to the principles applied here on earth. In fact, here's a summary of these first eight Beatitudes. You could sum them up as follows. The world admires haughtiness. Heaven prizes humility. The world loves to laugh. Heaven listens to our mourning. The world is impressed with force. Heaven loves gentleness. The world is into the here and now. Heaven hungers for the spiritual and eternal. The world demands justice. Heaven demonstrates mercy. The world assumes corruption. Heaven expects innocence. The world insists on its own rights. Heaven pursues peace. The world crushes its enemies, whereas heaven loves its enemies. The world we live in, it values pride and good times and control and materialism and strict enforcement and cunning and winning and political correctness. And it's as if Jesus walked right into the store and changed all the price tags. He turned life topsy-turvy. Instead of happy or the haughty, Jesus insists, happy are the humble. It's not the party crowd, but the people who can empathize with sorrow. These are the people with the richest joy. It's not the satisfied, but the seekers. Not the hard-nosed, but the forgivers. Not the... The fighters, but the peacemakers. Not the popular, but it's the persecuted who walk out of this life with God's joy. You see, on the shoreline that day, our Lord Jesus launched a countercultural revolution. A movement that upset the whole social order. His kingdom would be different. Notice Jesus addresses these eight Beatitudes, in fact, His whole sermon, to His disciples. Verse 1, his disciples came to him. Realize this is a sermon for Christians. The only way to live the life of the kingdom is in relationship with the king. 
Don't misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount. It's not some New Testament law or a moralistic code of behavior. No, it's the outgrowth of a life that's connected with Jesus. I've heard it put. Jesus isn't saying, if you do these things, you'll be saved. Rather, He's saying, if you're saved, you'll do these things. The Beatitudes are a believer's birthmark. These attitudes are proof that we're part of His kingdom. Here is how the Jesus people roll. And here's the flavor of it. If you, if you want it summed up, here's the essence of these eight Beatitudes. God is far more interested in what we be than in what we do. Throughout the sermon, attitudes prove to be far more important to God than our actions. What pleases God is not just right conduct, but right character. That's why these are the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. God's kingdom is all about motive and heart. In contrast, the Jewish Pharisees, they emphasize performance. They taught, do, do, do. Whereas Jesus stressed heart and character. He said, be, be, be. The Pharisees said, do, do, do. Jesus said, be, be, be. Frank Sinatra said, do, be, do, be, do. Which has absolutely nothing to do with this morning's Bible study, but I just decided to throw it in. No, what matters to God is not so much what we do as what we be. You see, the Pharisees, they did all the right things, but evil lurked in their hearts. Jesus desires a righteousness that comes from the inside out. You remember Paul was a Pharisee before he became a Christian. After his conversion to Christ, he said of the self-righteous life that he had manufactured, he says, I count it but rubbish. Literally there, dung, manure. In essence, he was saying this emphasis on do-do, it's just that. It's dung. God knows if you'll be the right person, then you'll do the right thing. Well, verse 2 tells us, Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed. And oh, how I love this word. It means happy. And here it's in the plural. A literal translation would be, Happy, happy, happy. Sounds like Phil Robertson. The Greek word translated happiness is more than what we think of when we usually use this term. The Greek writer Homer, he used it to describe the rich man who was so rich that he was immune from the cares of the common folk, how he would pay for groceries or how he would pay his rent, never once crossed his mind. Happiness for him was freedom from those worries. You know, people assume that this kind of happiness is the result of what I might acquire or the acclaim I might receive or the projects I might accomplish. Not so. Real, lasting happiness is the result of coming at life with the right attitude. Jesus says, adopt a certain mentality and you'll be free from the worries and the cares that burden other folk. And with the time I have left, I want to comment on each of these Beatitudes. We'll do so in rapid-fire succession. First, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ah, oh, the poor in spirit. These are the people who stand in stark contrast to the people who are full of themselves. 
They realize that their debt to God is far too large to be paid off by their own goodness. They've declared spiritual bankruptcy. And they've thrown themselves on the mercies of God. Author Max Licato writes, The poor in spirit, their cupboards are bare. Their pockets are empty. Their options are gone. They have long since stopped demanding justice. They are pleading for mercy. They don't brag. They beg. They ask God to do for them what they can't do without Him. These are the folks who no longer make excuses or justify their indiscretions. They've admitted how far short they've fallen, and they ask for God's mercy. Are you among the poor in spirit? You see, the poor in spirit are the spiritual beggars. They realize that their only hope with God is to humble themselves and plead for His help. They look outside of themselves. And Jesus will bless their humility and their admitted neediness with the kingdom of heaven. Ironically, in the end, the spiritual beggars end up the royal heirs. Jesus promises theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Years ago, I taught a Bible study on Romans chapter 3. I entitled the sermon, What You Won't Find in Heaven. In Romans 3, Paul embarks on a long discussion on the necessity of God's grace. And he includes that, concludes that discussion in verse 27. And I'm reading here from the Phillips translation. It says, What happens now to human pride of achievement? There is no more room for it. The whole matter is now on a different plane, believing instead of achieving. In other words, no one barters their religious deeds or their good works for God's blessing. Everything about our relationship with God is based on His grace, not our goodness. This means that in heaven, you won't find anybody strutting around with their peacock feathers all plumbed out. No room for pride in heaven. We'll realize that nothing was earned. Don't worry, there'll be no stuck-ups in heaven. No snobs in heaven. No one in heaven holier than thou. Everyone will, in heaven will realize that they did absolutely nothing to get there. That the work was done by Jesus alone and all we did was have faith. And since the people who show up in heaven will be the poor in spirit, then the same attitude will show up in them before they get there. The citizens of heaven, Jesus says, even while still living on earth, are the poor in spirit. A famous sculptor, he spent a lifetime studying Jesus. He wanted to sculpt his statue. When the project was finished, he invited a friend to come for a preview. The artist ripped off the canvas. His buddy just stood there scratching his head in awe of the most beautiful sculpture he'd ever seen. There was Jesus with his arms outstretched, but his face looking down. Well, after a long silence, his friend asked him, he said, I've got just one question. Why is Jesus' face turned downward? And that's when the sculptor replied, Well, when I studied the Son of God, I realized that to see His face, you have to be on your knees. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The world we live in advertises itself as one big party. Party hardy, man, it's always party time. Good times, lots of laughs, eat, drink, be merry. Isn't this the recipe for happiness? Jesus says, no. 
A truly blessed person is the man or the woman who's willing to mourn when need be. Who can be moved by another person's sorrows. This is the person who recognizes a time for tears. I mean, when there's sin within and there's sin around, how can our eyes stay dry if we truly grasp the consequences of sin? Once it was a zookeeper's elephant that died. He was sitting under a tree sobbing. A bystander commented, My, how he loved that elephant. The boss kind of laughed and said, You've got to be kidding. He has the job of digging its grave. See, there are all kinds of reasons in life to mourn. We, we grieve over pain and loss. We mourn uncaused circumstances. We cry over regrets and failures. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 even mentions what it calls godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow. That's regret over getting caught. That's remorse that I now have to endure the consequences of my sin. But a godly sorrow. This grieves over the hurt that I've caused God and others. It causes me to desire to turn from my sin. It produces repentance. You see, a life with all jollies and no sorrow would make for such a superficial people. Hey, the happiest folks I know are those who've been, who haven't been insulated from hurt, but those who have found God in the midst of their hurt. I've heard it said, in order to realize the worth of the anchor, we need to experience first the stress of the storm. Remember at the tomb of Lazarus, even Jesus wept. Robert Browning Hamilton, he wrote a wonderful poem that reiterates this point. Listen closely. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. You see, the first step in fixing what's broken in this world and what's broken in me is realizing that it's broke. Jesus comforts the person who stops pretending that all is well and mourns over the issues that grieve the Lord. Well, the third beatitude is in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Here's a definition for you. Meekness is strength under restraint. Strength under restraint. It's choosing to hold myself back when it's within my power to act. A meek person remains under control. When it comes to meekness, think of cologne. We once had a guy on the worship team, and he wore this stinky cologne. And he wore it so heavy that as soon as you walked in the doors back there, you could smell it. It was awful. You see, cologne needs to be worn in the right dosage, does it not? If it's too strong, it turns people off. And so it is when a person comes across too forceful. He intimidates rather than invites. The meek person knows just the right dose of how to come across. Once my son Zach, he was playing shortstop on his little league team. A weak hitter who never was on base. He was up to bat. He had a grounder to Zach. Usually, my son would make the play, but this time, uncharacteristically, Zach airmailed his throw over the head of the first baseman. I was just about to jump on him, 
when all of a sudden Zach winked at me and he whispered, Dad, I just wanted the kid to get on base so he could feel good for a change. That's meekness. It's not always having to be right or be best. A meek man knows that it's better to win your respect than it is to win the game. That souls are more important than the score. It's the ability to set aside a win for me to achieve a greater godly goal. And God trusts authority to people with this kind of priority. Notice what he says, the meek, they inherit the earth. The Athenian philosopher Pericles, he summed up the world of his day. Fishes in the sea as men do on the land, the great ones eat up the little ones. This is the way of man, is it not? But thankfully, this is not the way of Christ. Psalm 18, verse 35 says of God, Your gentleness has made me great. You see, His zeal could eat us all up, but He seeks what's best for us, not what's easiest for Him. Nowhere is God's meekness more pronounced, more evident than on the cross. There the Almighty kept His emotions, even His power in check in order to die in our place and reconcile us to God. This is why one day the meek shall inherit the earth. And then verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What's your driving passion? What is it that yanks your chain? I mean, life is full of stuff that creates a bloated feeling for a time. I mean, that's why we call it stuff. But it never slakes our deep down thirst. The human experience has been summed up as follows. We are born crying, live complaining, and die disappointed. We learn very early in life that a physical pleasure will never satisfy a spiritual hunger. And thus we're left longing. Realize the words that Jesus uses here, hunger, thirst, these are brutal words. These are strong, intense terms. You see, they don't hit us as hard, for few of us have really been hungry and thirsty. Oh, we work in the yard for a couple hours. We come and say, oh, I'm so thirsty. We're thirsty because we haven't had anything to drink in the last hour. But to the impoverished first century readers who, who first read these words and heard these words, these people woke up every day knowing, uh, not knowing where their next meal would come from. They woke up every day knowing they were going to have to scavenger for food that day. To them, these words, hungry, thirsty, they were a punch in the gut. These were strong words. Jesus was saying that when a man becomes so thirsty that nothing else matters to him but quenching that need, not what it will cost him, not maintaining his pride, not protecting his dignity, but when a thirsty person becomes desperate enough to look to Jesus, then they shall be filled. This was Jesus' promise. He promises satisfaction, fulfillment to those who hunger and thirst for Him and what He says is right. I love the old saying, Jesus is the only permanently interesting thing you will ever find. He never grows old. He never gets stale. His mercies are new every morning. In one of his hymns, Charles Wesley penned, You, O Lord, are all I want, more 
more than all in you I find. Hey, don't ever mistake the smug, self-satisfied person is happy. He, may, he might be masking it on the outside, but inside he's empty. No, real happiness comes from admitting that we're thirsty, that we're hungry, that we're desperate for Jesus Christ. And then verse 7 tells us, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Once there was a soldier, he was brought to Napoleon for his second act of treason. The boy's mother intervened. She asked the general to show her son mercy. Napoleon replied, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. The mother answered, sire, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all that I ask. The general replied, well then, it's mercy you will receive. I'm sure you've heard the adage, justice is getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Whereas mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And apart from God's mercy, heaven is out of reach for each one of us. This is why we need to be merciful. Can I deny you my mercy if I expect God to be merciful to me? Jesus says, the more mercy I show, the more mercy I'll know. This is why we need to bury the hatchet between each other. We need to cut our brother some slack. We need to show mercy today. Tomorrow, we might need some. Reminds me of the sign that hung on the wall outside the Catholic convent. It read, absolutely no trespassing. Violators will be persecuted to the full extent of the law. And then the message was signed, the Sisters of Mercy. It's one thing to talk about mercy, but real mercy is quick to demonstrate itself. 1 John 3 verse 17 asks, Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see, happy, happy, happy is the man who isn't stingy in extending mercy to others, God will be merciful to that man. And then verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now let me explain to you this way. A cup of coffee can be too strong, or it can be a little too weak, and I'll still drink it. I've got no problem with that. But if I find a fly in my cup of coffee, that's a different thing. Suddenly that cup of coffee is intolerable. And likewise, my love for God, it's sometimes stronger, it's sometimes weaker. But it should always be sincere. Hypocrisy becomes the fly in the cup. Jesus desires genuine faith. This is why He tells us only the pure in heart, only the pure in heart will see God. You see, the Pharisees, they tried to be pure on the outside. They constructed thousands of laws regulating every aspect of Jewish life. They thought stringent obedience to the rules could make them pure. But Jesus disagreed. God cares about purity of heart, not just purity of hands. The Jews cleaned up and polished up the outside of the cup, but inwardly their hearts were wicked. Jesus came teaching. It's the pure in heart. Those are the ones who will see God. In the Old Testament, the prophet Samuel, he said to King Saul, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, 
and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. In God's eyes, the sin lurking in your heart is just as evil as the brazen, ostentatious sin. A person's actions are his fruits, but his desires are the root. And the root is as much to God as the fruit. When God promised Jeremiah a new covenant, He said, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. In Christ, we receive this covenant. God promises to clean up the inner person for us. He makes our desires His desires. It's a miracle, really. Dirty people become pure in heart. He puts His law in our hearts and on our minds. I like how J.B. Phillips renders verse 8. He says, Blessed are the utterly sincere. The fountain of God from which we drink emits a pure stream. Sincere believers are those who see God. And then look at the beatitude in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers. These are the people who ease the tension in the room rather than inflame it. These are the people who work on the solution rather than reiterate the problem. These are the ones who lower their voice rather than raise it. These are the people who put off more light than they do heat. Oh, we live in a dog-eat-dog world, don't we? I slap you, and you go home and you slap your kids, and then they take out their frustrations on their friends at school the next day who reiterate or retaliate against their parents at home that when they get home, and this is how the world goes around. There's a ripple effect of angst and anger rumbling through society. And yet, and yet, I like to think of the Christians as shock absorbers. One guy slaps another guy who slaps another guy who slaps a Christian guy. And all of a sudden, a miracle occurs. That Christian absorbs the slap. And turns the other cheek. And returns good for evil. And love for hatred. All of a sudden, the ripple stops. He, takes, he or she takes a little of the anger out of the pot and interjects some grace. The peacemaker makes the world a better place. He takes the stones that people are throwing back and forth at each other. And rather than throw them back, he uses them to build a bridge. This is the peacemaker. You could say that a peacemaker likes to fight. He confronts hostility. He assaults misunderstanding. She attacks problems with solutions. They make war for peace. See, a peacemaker sets out to destroy his enemy by turning him into a friend. And never are we more like God than when we seek to make peace. This is why verse 9 Jesus calls the peacemakers sons of God. And then verses 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus warns us that when we take a stand for what's right or for His sake, 
Those in the wrong will shoot back at us. Persecution will follow the Christian. And yet when you're under fire, remember you're in good company. For it has happened to godly people before. He says, even the prophets, the folks this world calls chumps, God calls champs. Jesus tells the persecuted, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. I like what A.W. Pink writes. He says, it's a strong proof of human depravity that man's curse and Christ's blessing meet on the same person. In other words, who God adores, man abhors. A faithful Christian is hated on earth, but a hero in heaven. How ironic. We have joined the hated heroes. One day our scars will be swapped for medals. The eighth beatitude warns us that sometimes we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Just take a stand for what's right these days. Traditional marriage, or the life of the unborn, or decency in the media, or morality in the workplace, and you'll be persecuted by some people just for standing up for what's right. Reminds me of the man who died. He went to heaven. The angel at the gate asked him what righteous deeds had he done on earth. He replied, he said, well, once I tried to help out this little old lady. He said, well, great, tell me about it. He said, well, I saw this biker, this Hell's Angels type, this real bully. I mean, he was beating up this little old lady, and so I stepped in. I kicked a guy in the shins, told the woman to run for help. I even tried to punch the biker in the nose. The angel was so impressed by his act of bravery. He said, what a courageous act. How long ago did this incident occur? The man answered, about two minutes ago. At times, we suffer for righteousness, for no other reason than just trying to do good. At other times, Jesus warns us that opposition will raise its ugly head whenever we try to take a stand for His sake. Expect persecution when you stand up for Jesus. Hey, this world hated Jesus when He walked the planet. Remember, they crucified Him. Don't think it's done an about-face. One of the Roman poets described the early Christian community as, and I quote, the panting, huddling flock whose only crime was Christ. They were the object of scorn for no other reason than their loyalty to Jesus. Remember in John 16, verse 33, Jesus prepared us. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. He knew that this world would be a hostile, dangerous place for his followers. Here in verse 11, he tells us, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. The word revile means to cast in one's teeth. In other words, they'll take a bite out of you. If you try to do right and stand up for me, expect cruel and vicious opposition. And then the word persecute, it means to pursue to the end, to hunt you down. They'll deliberately pick on you. They'll even seek you out for harm. Stand up for Jesus in what's right, and you'll become a target for spiteful treatment. And that's not the worst of it. They'll also say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You'll be the object of rumors and lies and false innuendo. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, 
Jesus tells us, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. If everyone's being nice to you, that means there's something wrong with your witness. Hey, when you're persecuted for Jesus' sake, always remember His promise here in verse 12. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. It's not enough that Jesus lets us know here that we'll be rewarded. No, He goes a step beyond that. He informs us that it's going to be a great reward. Now, I'm not sure what's going to make it great. But great is better than good, and good is certainly better than enough. And so just the word great, a great reward, should be cause for us to hang on just a little tighter, just a little longer. A great reward will be worth a few wounds and scars. In the preamble of the United States Constitution, our founding fathers guaranteed us the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But those founding fathers, they were wise old birds, weren't they? They knew that they could guarantee the pursuit of happiness, but finding it was another matter. Make happiness your only goal, and that's the best way to end up unhappy. Happiness is never the result of direct pursuit. Real happiness, the blessedness that Jesus speaks of, is a byproduct of living life His way. And the Beatitudes are a beautiful picture of this Jesus culture. I once heard of a bicycle race in India where the object of the race was exact opposite of most bicycle races that we're familiar with. The winner was the cyclist who traveled the shortest distance over a given time. Now, check this out. The shortest distance. Everyone was on the starting line when the gun sounded. If a bike tipped over or if a rider let his foot touch the ground, he was disqualified. Thus, the cyclists all inched forward ever so slowly, moving just fast enough to maintain their balance. But imagine you. What if all of a sudden you joined the race, unaware of its unique rules? The gun sounds. You streak off from the starting line, pedaling as ferociously as you can, excited that you're creating such a distance between you and the rest of the pack. That's when you realize, man, I got it all backwards. You thought you were winning. But in reality, you're a loser. And this is what happens to the person who doesn't understand the Jesus culture. These eight Beatitudes. Don't be deceived. Don't get life backwards like the rest of the world has done. Happiness doesn't belong to the proud, but to the poor in spirit. Not to the merry, but to the mourners. Not to the manipulators, but to the meek. It's not the materialist who finds happiness, but it's those who are spiritually hungry. It's not the tough, but the merciful. Not the sneaky, but the sincere. Not the rebel rouser, but the shock absorber. It's not the celebrities who end up happy. It's the persecuted. Hey, blessed is the person who gets it right. Who lives the Jesus culture. Who lives their life the way Jesus has told us. Father, thank you for your word to us today.
and for your love for us. Thank you for these be attitudes, Lord. How important it is that we be the right person. If we be the right person, we'll do the right thing. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to take inventory of our hearts and of our lives today. That we would slow ourselves down. Lord, we don't want to get at the end of the race and discover we've misunderstood that we've got it all backwards. But we want to value those things that will last for eternity. We want to value what you value. Help us, Lord, to take these be attitudes to heart and to conform our lives accordingly. Lord, we want to live our lives the way Jesus told us. We pray all these things in his wonderful name. Amen.